The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. In your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 to, to 7, uh, but I'm going to read verses 1 to 9 uh, just uh, as we get started. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you want to follow along, I'll begin in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word for God's people. There was a little leaguer that was... uh, approached by a spectator and uh, he said uh, son what is the score in the game and the little leaguer said we're down 18 to nothing and the spectator said I bet you're kind of discouraged and he said oh no we haven't even gotten up to bat yet (laughs) Now, now most of us don't have the natural optimistic demeanor of that little leaguer Uh, Most of us, if uh, the weather turns cold, or the car doesn't work, or the pain in our body is chronic, uh, we tend to move quickly to despair and lack of joy. Uh, This is so much seen in just the way we often respond, even uh, when our finances aren't in order. If everything is good with our bank account, we're happy. But when things go south, we become anxious. Uh, If if we tether our hope to a relationship, then our uh, posture of heart, our emotions will go up or down depending on how that person is treating us or responding to us in a given day or a given moment. If our hope is ultimately tethered to our health, to our fitness, then we're going to struggle if the doctor gives us a dark diagnosis of our health. And so 
we as humans, even as those who have been called sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ, are in desperate need to be reminded of where our hope genuinely lies. In fact, I can't think of a greater starting point to a new year than to go back to the basics of where we as God's people celebrate our living hope. If you jump down to verse 13, and I believe it's up on the screen, uh, Peter goes on to say, therefore, now you know the word therefore uh, points us back to what we just read. But he goes on to say, preparing your minds for action. The idea is girding up the loins of your mind. It's kind of an old King James expression of saying, if you enter a 5K, you don't go with your robe flopping in the wind. You gather that up. And a lot of us during this holiday season, myself included, have found the thoughts that go through our mind kind of flopping in the wind of Netflix and sporting events and Christmas candy. Some of that is fine. But Peter is reminding us that we need to gird our minds for action and do that sober-minded. He's not talking about literal, physical inebriation here. He's talking about being drunk in our spirit. And we can become so quickly drunk with the promises of this world's allurements the world that loves the things that God hates and hates the things that God loves so quickly oozes into our soul. And so we need to be reminded to be only sober-minded. And here is the key point. He says we're to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That would be a great New Year's resolution. The preaching point that's up on your screen is simply this. The preaching point is, set your hope fully in the God of your salvation. And so our New Year's resolutions of doing and checklisting, if they're not born out of a celebration of the God of our salvation, then we're either going to become discouraged and disillusioned or prideful and legalistic. You see, we celebrate our hope in the God of our salvation. Think about this. As you think about uh, where it all started, the, the grace that we've received in the past. Did, did God redeem your soul by grace? Is that a yes? Yeah, he did. Is he someday going to deliver our earthly body by that same grace? He is. Did, did God forgive your sin because of grace? Yes, he did. Someday he will remove you from the very presence of sin by that same grace. And so what we're going to look at today is a reminder of fixing our mind soberly gathering up the loose robe of our mind and harnessing our thoughts on the God of our salvation. And that takes us back to verse 3. In the original Greek, verses 3 to 12 is one continuous paragraph. And the end all of the paragraph is the opening statement in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea here is 
to speak a good word about the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of Americans, a lot of our neighbors and co-workers who believe in a God. They, they aren't anti-religion. They're not even anti-God talk. But this is a very specific God that we bless, that we speak a good word about. It is the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, even the Jews of Jesus' day acknowledged that there was one God. But they, when Jesus came on the scene, when when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, they did not believe on the one that God had sent. And so it's a very specific God that we bless, that we praise, that we worship, that we celebrate. It is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to give you three ways from verses 3 to 7 in particular, that we can begin 2022 celebrating the Lord. Worshiping, praising, blessing, saying a good word about our God. The first is this, and it's found in verses 3 to 5. We can first of all celebrate what God has done. According to His great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and so the first thing that we can note is that God the God that we celebrate the God who has uh, who has benefited us with this amazing salvation he has gifted us with a living hope And you can break it down, even thinking about according to His great mercy. First of all, for those of us who may think that we're too good to need a Savior, that implies that all of us are in need of God's pity, compassion, grace, and mercy. The fact that He says that He has caused us to be born again implies that we were formerly without life, without hope, without God. Even our suburbanite, middle-class, comfortable neighbors. The Bible says apart from Christ, the living hope, they are without God and without hope. That's Paul's language, uh, which supplements Peter's language beautifully here. We, we, uh, we see that we are in need of God's mercy. Uh, this also encourages, so it humbles the person who says, I'm too good to need a Savior, but it also encourages the person who says, I'm too bad for God to accept me. <laughs> because you see, mercy is for sinners. I was reminded of this amazing quote when we sang one of the wonderful songs we've been worshiping together with this morning, that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in me. Aren't you thankful for that today? There there is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in me. That where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And you see, we celebrate what God has done according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. Jesus once said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. 
You see, the message that uh, our friends and our family members need is not primarily you are unhappy and need joy. They do. You are confused and you need an explanation. That's also true. It's not even that you are weak and need strength, though that is true of all of us. But, but you see, the message of living hope is that you are dead without life and you need to be born again. You need new life. It is not decorating the Christmas tree with ornaments that gives you new life. Exactly what did you and I have to do with being born into the home that we were born into? Absolutely zero. Nothing to do. And so when we were born and we came through the birth canal, we came into a whole new world. We heard a language, we hear a language that we have never been introduced to before. People talking, and all of this is so new. And it's mind-blowing how transformative new birth is. That's something to celebrate. But he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. To a living hope. And people need hope. This is the beauty of this. That God has transferred us from the realm of the hopeless to the hopeful. You see, as believers in Jesus, we are not ultimately pessimist. And we're not ultimately optimist. We are hoptimist. Because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and because we know that the Bible teaches that God is in control of rulers, He's in control of politicians, He's in control of worldwide pandemics, He's ultimately in control of bad health diagnosis, and I'm not minimizing the hurt and the frustration in any and all of that. But because our hope is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and the fact that God is sovereign over all things, we have been born again to a living hope. You see, Paul says that death is our last enemy, and Jesus conquered that problem. When he, as we sing about, began, his body began to breathe, and he burst out of that tomb. That gives us great hope for optimism. And so we celebrate what God has done. Are you doing that today? Will you resolve to celebrate, to guard your mind and set it fully on the grace that's already been given to you in the new birth because of His mercy, because of His bodily resurrection from the dead? Secondly, though, the reason we celebrate what God has already done is that He's guaranteed our eternal inheritance. Look at verse 4 to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Isn't that so unlike all of our human experience? The new car that you bought eventually is going to rust out. The new home that you just invested in is eventually going to have a roof leak. You see, everything that we know and experience is perishable, is defiled, it is not ultimately preserved. Sometime it would be a great exercise with your kiddos to take them to a junkyard and see all of their new devices ultimately someday being tossed into the junkyard. Right? 
Because you see, our human experience says everything is temporal. And it's wonderful for a season, but it never ultimately fulfills. It always, to some measure, needs to be replaced, needs to be propped up, and it ultimately dissolves. But that's not our inheritance as God's children. And I think sometimes we look at our inheritance in heaven and we think about a mansion and we're like, well, you know, I like my 2,300 square foot home here. I'm not all that amped up about a mansion up there or even the streets of gold. I like the necklace that I'm wearing today. So I think it's helpful to step back and understand that there is a measure of anticipation here without any disappointment. There is also the reality that our inheritance is not just property, it's a person. Our inheritance is Christ. Let me say it to you this way, redemption. You are a part of my eternal inheritance. I don't have time to develop that by going to other passages, but there is a sense in which our inheritance, your small group, your relationships that you value so much here at Redemption are going to get infinitely better when we're there. Because you're not going to have sin that you bring to the table and that person isn't going to have any selfishness to bring to that relationship. And so the inheritance isn't just the gold and it's not just the mansion. It is Christ and it is one another. And that is something that we can celebrate. We can celebrate what God has done thirdly because God guards our faith until the end. You know, a lot of times we, we start off well and we, we live life and we're excited. I mean, you are a part of a new, growing, thriving church. But a few bumps come in the road, a few difficulties come into the marriage, a few challenges come into the parenting or the grandparenting and you start to lose your grip on grace. And so the question oozes into our thoughts, can I hold out to the end? And Peter answers that so clearly in verse 5. Because what we see here is it doesn't ultimately depend on our ability to hold out. It ultimately depends on God who preserves his own. Look at it who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Someone has painted a picture that in our faith journey through this life, we are on the inside of a giant rubber band. And we may get tossed and turned and we may have questions and we may have doubts and we have, may have temporary lapses in our faith but we would be just like Peter, would we not? Do you remember how many times in the three years that Christ ministered with these men, minus Judas, who was a fraud, that he looked at them and he said, oh, you of what kind of faith? Little faith. <laughs> I mean, all Peter had to do is recount how he wouldn't even own up to a servant girl by a fireplace the night that Christ was illegally tried that he even knew Christ. By the time Jesus is on the cross that Friday, all of his disciples have fled. To the point that when Jesus personally met Peter after the body, his own bodily resurrection and restored him, 
So you see, Peter, of all people, could look back at his own experience and he could say, you know what? There were times that I lost my grip on Jesus, but he never let go of his grip on me. And that brings us great comfort that our salvation doesn't ultimately rest on our ability to persevere. And we are called and commanded to persevere to the end. But it ultimately rests on God's power. He is protecting us through faith. And he's doing that for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Can you imagine? I I pictured the old uh, show Extreme Home Makeover. You know, when they bring the couple back from their Disney World tour, wherever they sent them while they were completely redoing their house, and then they pull the, whatever, the sliding wall off to the side, and they look at their home for the first time, and they're like, oh, I think that's going to be us at the revelation at the last time. It's just going to be so amazing. And God protects us for that. And that gives us great cause for celebration. But I think as we set our hope in God in 2022, we not only need to celebrate what God has done, but what God is doing. And that is found for us in verses 6 and 7a. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. How many of you have ever been through a trial? How many of you are currently in a trial? How many think you might have a trial waiting for you sometime later in 2022? Okay. So this applies to all of us, right? Now the trial that the recipients of this letter were going through is that they were exiles throughout modern day Turkey, the Macedonian world of that time. Uh, the world was not all amped up about their love affair with Jesus Christ, their their passion for Jesus to be glorified in all things. And, And there was hostility there. There was a rub there. A lot of the letter is given over to preparing them and by implication us today for persecution. Uh, Something that you and I may experience more in the coming years is our own culture wanders further and further away from uh, its Judeo-Christian background. As it becomes more tolerant of the things that God hates and uh, hates the things that God loves. You see, ultimately, we are on a collision course with our own culture. Uh, and, and so Peter's words encourage us that, that when we face various trials, that is not something that should surprise us. I do take encouragement from the fact that even if you don't feel like you're being persecuted at present, he says you have been grieved by various trials. So it could be something related to your health or your marriage or your your family or a thousand other things that applies here. What is so remarkable here is that God is clearly doing two things in the midst of your grief. Before we get to those two things, let me say that the number one thing I think that the beginning of verse 6 does for us is it points us back to what we've just talked about. It, It points us back to the fact that we've been gifted with the living hope, that we've been guaranteed our future inheritance, that we have been guarded until the final salvation. 
I mean, that's something you just never get over. That's something you never move on from. That is something that anchors your soul on the stormiest day of your life. That that on your best day and, and on your worst day, you have a living hope. And His name is Jesus. Amen? But I do believe that the Spirit of God through Peter gives us two things that God is clearly doing. First of all, He's offering us hope even in grief. And secondly, He is purifying our faith. What's interesting here is that there are two tenses in verse 6. He says, you you greatly rejoice and yet you are in searing pain. How does that go together? Uh, Pain, it's over here. Joy is over here. How do they come together? How do we smile through our tears? Because of what God is doing in the pain. You see, it's two present tenses here. It doesn't say because you are really rejoicing, you are not really that unhappy because you are rejoicing in Jesus. And it doesn't say because you're in pain, you're not rejoicing in Jesus. The pain and the joy go together. Spurgeon put it this way. The steps by which we ascend to the place of joy are usually moist with tears. And in a few years with Christ, you, you get this. That even in the darkest hour, you, you can look back and see how God carries you through those times. I remember a famous godly Christian who went through incredible suffering at one point in her life. Later in her life, she said, if we look within, we're going to be distressed. If we look without, we're going to be depressed. But we can look to Jesus and be at rest. You see, when, uh, when you are grieving, perspective is everything. You've been gifted with a living hope. You've been guaranteed an eternal inheritance. He's promised to guard your faith until the end. But the second thing that God is doing is not just providing opportunity for joy and sorrow, but He's also purifying your faith. He says, so that, purpose clause, verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith Notice this, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. So what is he doing in your trial that you've been through, that you're going through, or one that you haven't even encountered yet, but the Spirit of God may be preparing you for that, preparing me for that, is we understand that the reason that God allows us to go through trials is to purify our faith. Now, our faith, as we've already seen in the case of Peter and the other 11 or other 10 apostles, disciples, sometimes is pretty wimpy, isn't it? And and sometimes we let go of our grip and, and we come to Christ and we say, man, Jesus, you are so worth it. I'm willing to leave sin behind and follow you, Jesus. That's conversion. But then... Our hearts overinvest in things like our GPA, our new job, our marriage, others' approval of us, our, our comfort, our spouse, our children, our, our grandchildren. And many, if not all of those things, are amazing gifts from a very good and a very gracious creator. 
if we become over-invested in those things and those things that we make ultimate demands go sideways, then we are confronted, as we all are to some degree, we're confronted with our own self-pity, our own anxiety, our own anger, our own lust. Or you can just fill in, and I could too, the blank there. And so, and so when we're in the fire and, and the faith is being tested, we really face two choices. We, as God's children, can say, God, you're not enough. What you have done in our doing and yet will do in my salvation is not enough. I cannot live without, and you fill in the blank, that relationship, that new job, that comfort. So that's one thing that we can do. But what God is asking of us and God is helping us graciously reminding us in the text this morning is that we can also go to God and say, God, I want you to be my real wealth. So I don't go up and down all the time over from my financial portfolio or this. I want you to be my ultimate relationship so that when this relationship over here goes sideways or south, even if it's for a season, I don't just lose it. You see, God can can step in and when he puts us into the furnace, it is not, and this is the sense here, I think, of verses 6 and 7, it is not to just prove that our faith is shallow and disgenuine, I think he is ultimately proving our faith like he did Peter in John chapter 6. Peter was, as were the other disciples in that lengthy chapter in John chapter 6, seeing so many would-be disciples who had jumped on the Jesus bandwagon just say, you know what, I don't like all this talk about eating my flesh and drinking my blood metaphorical uh, usages, of course, that Christ gave. I'm not so excited about King Jesus right now. And they take off. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, do y'all want to bolt too, basically? And Peter looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You are the one sent from God. And so what God does in the fire as the impurities of our faith are tested is he's asking us, do you want to go bolt too? Not so that we do, but giving us opportunity after opportunity to grip onto the one who already has his grip firmly on us inside a giant. And just be encouraged that uh, this is a lifelong process, isn't it? I mean, the apostles, the same apostles that were too scared to stick around even at the cross of Christ later in Acts chapter 4 are rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And and tradition tells us that most of them were martyred for their faith. And that's encouraging, isn't it? That no matter where your faith is today, what impurities are yet to be burned off today, that the God of your salvation is so invested in you, He is so invested in me, that He will continue to filter our faith and to purify our faith till the last day. So we can be encouraged not only in celebrating what God has done, but what God will do. But finally, and briefly, let's celebrate what God will do. 
And I think that the last half of verse 7 is uh, almost at a, at a kind of, you know, a, a quick read feels blasphemous. Because when I first read it years ago, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I thought, oh, Brian reminded us we're a vertical church. That's Jesus gets the praise. What's crazy is that you will be commended by God at the judgment seat of Christ. I would encourage you to jot down a couple of references and think about this. You see, our God is eager to reward your faith. He's eager to reward you. Now, just to be clear, salvation is a gift. It is not by works. It is not we do, therefore I accept. It has been done. Jesus did it all on the cross. Therefore, God accepts us. It is by grace that we've been saved through faith. But that doesn't mean that there's not a motivation for reward. And perhaps in the context of the end of verse 7, what we are seeing at the second appearing of Christ is that the person who has suffered the most for their faith may receive the most praise and the most honor from the lips of Christ. Or like the Apostle Paul, anticipating the end all, he wanted to hear him say, well done, thou good and what? Faithful servant. How often are you motivated by that in your ministry team when you get weary? You know, the older Marcy and I get, the more we appreciate our parents uh, we're just two very ordinary people who were born to two very ordinary sets of people, one a welder in West Texas and one a farmer in Saskatchewan, Canada. And, and, and we recognize that when Scripture says each man will receive his praise from God, that God is in heaven not with a running video of our life to cut out all the bad stuff and maybe there's 20 seconds left of good stuff he can praise. I don't think that's the imagery here. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 indicates that each man's praise will come to him from God. And when I think about my parents and when I think about my father-in-law and my mother-in-law, just in the very ordinary 1,000 ordinary moments of their everyday life, how they were faithful, how they persevered under trial, how they did things for the glory of God. And I say, man... They're going to get a well done from Jesus. I want to be like that. I want to follow in their train. I want to celebrate what God will do at his appearing. Now we could end the sermon there and we'd have a lot to chew on really for the entirety of 2022. We can just celebrate what God has done, what he is doing and what he will do. But I think there's one more thing that is so helpful for us to remember. You see, God did not make us sinks. He made us faucets. The, the sink, the water, water gathers in the bottom of the sink and we can sit and we can soak and we can sour. If you turn over to chapter 2 and verse 9, you will see that Peter, after reminding us of our identity, not only in what we've talked about today, but also in chapter 2, verse 9, our identity as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All of that is wonderful to, to revel in our identity as God's children, as recipients of grace, as those who've been guarded 
by his power till the end. But there's some other purpose clause here, redemption, that we here and that living hope in the future in South Austin, Buda, and Kyle need to always be mindful of. The reason that we celebrate is so we may communicate or proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, there are suburbanites right here, all the way slightly north of you here, that think that they have the latest pickup truck, the latest gadgets, and man, they are filled with hope. But those things will not anchor them when the storm comes. Especially the storm of God's wrath, which has already been satisfied by Jesus on the cross for those who put their trust in him. And so what you and I need to do as we think about our identity, as we we move into mission and not just become sink Christians, but faucet Christians, that our identity in Christ, our celebration of salvation, is to flow out from us to the rest of the world to bless others like a pipe carries water from its source to a parched land. And so what are we doing? We're advertising We're publishing the fame of God's mighty and powerful acts, redemption. And the greatest act that God has ever done is the sending of His precious Son. He lived the life we could not live. He died the death that we deserved. And God raised Him from the dead. And those who repent and trust in Jesus alone are given new life. I hope that is your desire this year, is to make God famous to those that he will yet call into his kingdom. And then 1 Peter 3, 15, in your hearts, one chapter over, same book, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you. Here's a question, redemption. Is there anything about your life that demands a supernatural explanation? That that someday someone would come to you when you're on the treadmill at the fitness gym or you're standing in line and they would ask you, well, why do you? Why do you live according to a sacred old-fashioned book in 2022? What would motivate you to do that? Are we ready to give an answer? Or are we going to say, well, you know, it's just kind of the thing I grew up with. I mean, my parents took me to Redemption Kids and Redemption Students, and I guess it's sort of, you know, my heritage. Or are we ready to give an answer and point them to the living hope, Jesus? So as we celebrate, communicate, there was a In the early 1950s, a a woman named uh, Florence Chadwick, and she was trying to become the first woman to swim the 21-mile Catalina Channel off of Long Beach, California. And she set out and swam for six and eight and 12 hours, and she was exhausted. And finally, after 16 hours, she she was just completely spent. And the problem is there had been a fog bank. And and she couldn't see where she was going. There was the spotter boat nearby, and she couldn't see ahead. And she told the spotter boat, in sheer exhaustion, pull me up. 
And when she, when the fog finally cleared, she discovered that she was just several hundred yards removed from her destination. A couple months later, on a clear day, she set out to break the record. And she beat it by two hours off of the ultimate record of any man or woman. She broke the record. Why? What was the difference between the first swim and the second? She could see the end. She could see the end. And that is what the Holy Spirit calls us to redemption. To look at our salvation, to be revealed at the last time, to gird up our minds, to be sober in mind, and to set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to us. Will you do that with me this year? Let's pray together.